Hey y'all and welcome back to the Doc Buddy Journal. I'm your host Eric Sunset. This one's being recorded today on Thursday, June 1st, 2023. We're going to change it up. We are going to leave our housekeeping for the end. We don't have time for it right now anyway. We've got a jam-packed episode. Two topics. The first one is from our good friends over at Becker's on the topic of disruptors scaring physicians. And the next is from Amanda Moy. She is a biomedical informatics PhD candidate at Columbia University. And we're going to break down her study on EHR use in the emergency department. So let's get into it. Starting with the uh, the interview piece from Becker's, and of course, we'll have a link to their article in the show notes and on our website at docbuddy.com. Um, it's titled Disruptors Scaring Physicians, and I love these. I love when Becker's puts these out because you get a little bit of insights uh, from the front lines for folks living through the disruption. Uh, we have... Um, a handful of folks that contributed to this one. Some are physicians, some are not. There are kind of three or four themes that stood out though, uh, starting with burnout and the looming physician shortage, AI, a lot of ink is getting spilled around AI these days, the good, the bad, the ugly, and then market forces uh, disrupting um, the delivery and the supply chain of healthcare. And we are going to start with burnout and physician shortage. There's a couple of responses here, and I really do like this type of content from Becker's. It's sort of a list, like everybody loves to click and read lists, Uh, but the feedback is genuine. Uh, I don't think Becker's steers their responses in any particular direction. They ask the question, and they get what they get, and then they print it. So to start... Uh, Luis Argueso, partner at InHealth Advisors on the topic of burnout and physician shortage. The extraordinary rate of provider burnout is the most concerning healthcare disruptor to me. When combined with physician shortages, America's healthcare workforce is under enormous strain as the population ages and the demand for healthcare services increases. Should, should sound pretty familiar because we've been talking about this. Um, Last week, I even shared that the topic didn't get as much attention as I thought maybe it should, but it seems like it's picking up steam. Either that or I wasn't looking in the right places. And we've got, of course, of course, have a great piece of content on the DocBuddy blog, docbuddy.com slash blog. You can check it out. Um, And that was uh, actually echoed by Dr. Shmita Ruiard, MD, Associate Medical Director of the Permanente Medical Group. Uh, way out west across the country from me in Oakland, California. We've seen a huge number of physicians retiring at a time when the U.S. population will need more health care as they grow older and sicker. And this is a concern. We're already facing a shortage of physicians, especially in primary care. The shortage is certainly not a good thing. Of, uh, I think I've shared it on the Doc Buddy Journal that for a annual physical, I'm now eight months out or I was eight months out at the time of making the appointment. And that is just laughable uh, that it takes that long. It's going to get worse. And part of the issue is that what's the solution? How do you get more physicians into the workforce when it takes over a decade uh, to go through medical school and residency and to be accredited and be treating patients? Uh, The other end of this is how do you keep more providers practicing and not retiring early? That's obviously complicated by just how burned out the profession is, just how over it the profession is. 
So I don't want to beat a dead horse there, uh, but in this very fresh piece of content, burnout and physician shortage from Becker's uh, starting to get a little more attention. Good. Let's shine a light on the issue. Let's flush it out. Let's come up with a solution. We need an action plan. Otherwise, these horrific wait times for care are going to get worse. And um, the supply chain of physicians uh, going through medical school and then becoming that MD, DO, DPM, you know, all the way down the line uh, doesn't get any shorter as the years go by either. So good that physician shortage and burnout are getting some more attention, but nowhere near as much attention as AI, as artificial intelligence. And I'm going to try to resist the urge um, not to use AI in air quotes or to call it what it really is, which is a predictive model, not artificial intelligence in any sense of the word. You already heard that from me. So Dr. Brian Curtin MD, orthopedic surgeon at Ortho Carolina up there in Charlotte in the Tar Heel State. He goes on the record saying, artificial intelligence has potential to completely disrupt the way healthcare is delivered in the foreseeable future with potential improvements in efficiencies as well as diagnostic accuracy. It's a very slippery slope that requires substantial oversight if it is to be implemented successfully. And continuing in this vein of AI as a disruptor, Dr. Matt Mazurik, MD, Assistant Clinical Professor of Anesthesiology at St. Raphael's campus of Yale in New Haven, Connecticut. Artificial intelligence bots and other novel technologies incorporating AI are already making an impact. My concern is the use of AI in healthcare needs to be evaluated and governed before unleashing its potential in clinical care. One more uh, physician responded on the topic of AI, and I've kind of grouped these into their logical blocks. This is not how the article was published, of course. Uh, but Dr. Shlomit Chal, MD, PhD, and this is the EVP and Chief Physician Executive at Houston Methodist. One significant disruptor in the healthcare industry is the use of AI and machine learning technologies. And this isn't a part of the quotes, but machine learning technologies very aptly put, if you ask me. But continuing, they are fundamentally changing the way healthcare is provided with potential implications for the role of physicians and other healthcare providers. AI is entering all medical fields, specifically in ophthalmology and in retina, the field I specialize in. While AI can significantly enhance diagnostic accuracy, personalized treatment, and efficiency in healthcare, we must be mindful that we must find the balance between helping our patients and creating new problems. I don't mean to pick on our contributor here because I get it. I don't want to miss the forest for the trees with the quote. Uh, but when Dr. Shaw goes on to say that it can significantly enhance diagnostic accuracy, personalized treatment, and efficiency in healthcare, I got to ask the question, where is it doing that? Where have we seen these points come to fruition? I think there's potential that it can do those things, but I've yet to see a clear-cut example of uh, enhanced diagnostic accuracy, personalized treatment, and efficiency in healthcare at scale. I'm well aware of the um, the magical eye. You know, you take a, a piece of diagnostic imaging, you run it through the machine. Please identify anything that may be malignant. Okay, great. Uh, personalized treatment. 
don't know that anybody is utilizing AI to deliver on that, especially, and we've touched on this in the past before, especially uh, when genomics, precision medicine, isn't really widely adopted. So how personalized are we talking? Without that component of precision medicine, how much more personalized can you get than efficiency? Uh, the number one driver of burnouts, if you can read between the lines, uh, the tools that physicians use are what is driving most of their burnout, most of their dissatisfaction with their careers. Uh, so where exactly are we seeing these things? Again, don't mean to pick on our contributor. Uh, that's not in the spirit of the, uh, the contribution from Dr. Shaw, uh, but would love to be made aware of any examples of those things happening in production, at scale, in real uh, healthcare encounters. And kind of continuing on this vein of being a, a nitpicker for AI, <clears throat> and over the last two months, AI, and I'm using that term loosely, if you know me, you know that I'm a huge skeptic of artificial intelligence. Big believer in mathematics, big believer in statistics, big believer in predictive analytics. AI, eh, it's a misnomer. But it's been a hot topic, uh, whatever you want to call it, here on the Doc Buddy Journal. Is it potentially a great utility? Yeah, undeniably so. It's potentially useful. Does it need guardrails and regulation? Also, undeniably, yes. I'm a big believer in free markets, so it's kind of painful for me to call for regulation of a service, especially uh, governmental regulation of a service, and it, that does have its place. The, the host of the Doc Buddy Journal, me, I'm, I'm certainly no anarchist. However, uh, in this particular instance, you have got to manage risk. You have to manage risk. And when we're talking about healthcare, that risk is first and foremost assumed by, by patients, whether they're aware of it or not. Next, obviously, you have the provider and their organization. They're also assuming risk. What if the service is rendered based on AI inputs kills somebody? God forbid. Without proper oversight, though, this seems like a matter of when and not if. And let's break that down a little bit because this is still a black box to a lot of people. How does an AI model work? Well, to properly use tools like AI or predictive analytics, LLMs, which that's a large language model like ChatGPT, you need to have a very high degree of confidence that one, the data that you use to shape and build the model is correct. And think about, think about health records. What percent of somebody's health records are 100% accurate 100% of the time? Right? So if we're going to be pulling data out of these things and these things being EHR records at scale, are you sure it's right? So number one, the data that you use to shape and build the model, you got to make sure that's right. And number two, the outputs from the model have to make sense. So while there's definitely the potential for greater efficiency, there's potential for a lot of things, you really need to be sure that your model is good. And then number two, when you use that model to get an output, that the output from the model makes sense. Over the last couple of weeks, and even going back longer than that, there's been a lot of really funny content on Twitter about just how dumb 
you can make something like chat GPT look like, why would you think that just because an LLM large language model like chat GPT, just because it's embedded in an EHR that it's suddenly more correct, more accurate, or more timely, just because the same capabilities are in an EHR as opposed to in your web browser. Hopefully you don't think that. A second ago, I was talking about regulation and free markets, da 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 da. But to put a bow on that thought, as of today, Congress hasn't done anything with regard to so-called AI, but states, the states are, states are starting to take action into their own hands. Um, to date, California, Illinois, Texas, and Colorado, which that's, uh, that's where we're headquartered, is out of Denver, Colorado. These states have introduced or passed laws uh, that are focused on protecting consumers from harms caused by AI. And eventually, there will be federal regulation around it, and the state laws are obviously going to have to coexist and jive with them to some extent. You know, go thinking back to our founding fathers, um, I would call it brilliant that you can have both state and federal laws, and they both make sense a lot of the time, um, even though they are not one and the same. So I, with that said, I think it'll be really interesting to watch the interplay between the two and then especially any differences in handling between red states and blue states. And we're, we're not getting political. This isn't a political podcast. There's plenty of other places that you can get that. I'm just saying that it's going to be very interesting to see the difference between, say, a Texas or an Oklahoma and a Florida versus a California or a Massachusetts. You know, pick the, the polar opposite ends of the spectrum and how they generally vote in a general election. We will see. We probably don't have long to wait. And the final nugget that we're going to uh, extract and borrow from our friends over at Becker's relates to market forces. From Michael Myers, president and CEO of Myers and Gerard Medical out there in Manhasset, New York, uh, has a, a very interesting and sort of a timely take to me. Optum, the large pharmaceutical distributor pharmacy management company, also manages over 70,000 physicians in a variety of practice venues. They also have other subsidiaries that use other names that manage various specialties. Does it not strike you as a problem that the insurance company that insures so many of the patients also owns the doctor groups? Seems a bit counterintuitive to the checks and balances of good healthcare. This is the type of thing that bankrupted Envision, and it's only a matter of time before other physician management groups file as well. That way, you can create a socialized medical system run by United Healthcare as a governmental surrogate. I'm sure they will be by, I'm sure they will be buying hospitals as well quite soon. Those that are not bankrupt first. Going back to the statements I made on free markets from earlier, I got to think Michael is correct here that the consolidation and potential potential antitrust law violations, or at least something that looks like them, uh, do nothing to help the overall quality of healthcare services, and more importantly, the price that consumers have to pay to get them. I do want to disclaim here, I'm not a lawyer, never have been, probably never will be. 
And it is definitely not Doc Buddy's position that Optum is in violation of any antitrust laws. This is just a layman's observation from me, and I assume from Michael Myers as well. I don't see an Esquire um, as a part of his title or suffix. Uh, just a couple of layman's observations that it's kind of starting to look like that much vertical integration could potentially not benefit consumers. Got it? Good. Like I've said, these articles for Beckers really are some of my favorite to share with you, the listeners of the Doc Buddy Journal, because you get a perspective on what's happening from the people that actually see it happening. And with that, let's jump into topic number two, how clinician perceptions of EHR use can drive EHR innovation. Studies on EHR use and clinician burnout have largely centered on quantitative measures like EHR time metrics, and and time is important, obviously, very important. While these studies have laid a foundation for health IT optimization, the qualitative experiences of clinicians are key to EHR innovation. And that's a, a quote from the article that delivers the story on Amanda Moy, who's, again, a biomedical informatics PhD candidate at Columbia University, and she recently co-authored this qualitative interview-based study that gathered perspectives on EHR use from emergency medicine clinicians. The study focused on EHR use in the emergency department because of the ED's challenging, fast-paced work environment. And in the study... Uh, Moy spoke with 12 ED physicians and 12 ED nurses that are scattered across the country about their perceived problems with EHRs, and here they are. Lack of automation, copy and pasted data creates clutter, and this is in quotes, I kind of like this one, viral copies of errors, and that by that I think she means that they persist from encounter to encounter to encounter to encounter, for the same patient and you can never really get rid of them and it just kind of compounds in on itself. So that was lack of automation, copy and pasted data creating clutter. The next was that simple tasks require manual workarounds and then finally editing auto-populated data. So we've talked about how healthcare burnout is driven largely by dissatisfaction with technology that healthcare workers are compelled to use each day and there you go. There are some concrete examples, courtesy of Amanda Moy uh, and her co-authors, on exactly why that is. And would you look at that? We're back to one of the pillars that supports Doc Buddy's point of view. And our, our point of view, or our POV, uh, we hold it uh, near and dear. It's both an internal POV for what we're doing to develop our solutions, and as well as an external POV uh, when we're speaking with Clients, potential clients, partners in the marketplace. Uh, but this, this pillar that we're talking about is that you have got to address workflows. Physician and nurse and clinician or otherwise burnout uh, to actually alleviate any burnout. And the complaints listed by Amanda in her study, they're, they're all totally valid and I get it. I understand why you'd be frustrated as a user of these things. Uh, that being a, an EHR in the ED. But these are either these are either settings that an administrator put together for the for the EDs that she talked to, or they're a hard coded workflow rule that you're not really going to be able to do much about. So what do I mean by that? 
Well, when you're looking at the uh, the four supplied bullet points here that we uh, we peeled out of the the piece, lack of automation. Well, this might come across as a little skeptical, a little cynical, but having been on the EHR side of things for 10 or so years, sometimes lack of automation uh, is a legitimate concern, but other times it comes down to the question that you're being asked on the EHR side of things by your client. How come it doesn't just do what I want it to do? And the unfortunate answer there is that software can only do what you ask it to do. It isn't going to know what you want it to do. Not necessarily anyway. For patient safety and compliance purposes, you, you have to provide some type of an input, right? <clears throat> Unless you can telepathically communicate with your computer and your EHR, you have to deliver some type of an input for the next thing to happen. And hopefully that's a, that's a beautiful well-scripted, thorough automation. And I, I, I don't want to go all the way down the chat GPT rabbit hole again, uh, but this is definitely a place you could do it. The, the next logical question is if, how come it doesn't just do what I want it to do? The next question in a chat GPT world, which we're living in now, what if my software could predict what I do want it to do? Well, guess what? you're still gonna have to provide an input or you're gonna have to verify suggested outputs. What do you think will take you less time? Just providing the inputs or reviewing a suggested output and making sure it's actually what you want? I would bet that providing the inputs is the faster route one way to get it to do what you want. Next, we have the uh, complaint that slows down our ED clinicians that copy and pasted data creates clutter and viral copies of errors. Totally get that. That's, uh, that's definitely a problem. Did you know that more than half of all EHR data is duplicate content? Bringing a prior note forward is a really common way to populate an encounter. Um, it's the easy button. But in this case, speed does not equate to efficiency because then, and this goes kind of relates to the previous point, when you bring forward a prior encounter and duplicate all that content, you are then going to have to parse through this wall of copied text to get what you want, or even worse, go back through your template and update the discrete values. Um, this is not the exact right example, but what if their vitals are slightly different? blood pressure is different, they gained 10 pounds, they lost 10 pounds, you know, whatever it is, you're going to bring forward that prior encounter and then have to go through and update the things that did change, or hopefully you're doing that. And obviously DocBuddy solves this for our users with rapid and precise documentation from scratch for each encounter. And not just from scratch, if, you, if there's a valid reason to bring forward a prior encounter, like for a diabetes check, which is not totally applicable to the ED, I do understand that. Uh, but to have a, a rapid and precise way to generate that data at the point of care, you know, legacy EHRs have a really tough time with that. Next, and this is painful, especially in an ED, simple tasks require manual workarounds. And the example given was that instead of being able to delete text, nurses described having to write another note indicating that they had added the information accidentally painful that you can't just addend the notes and instead have to create a totally new one 
hopefully without a ton of, of uh, copy and pasted content. And hopefully you're not relying on any automations to do the right thing for you uh, because you're now generating a new note to fix the note that you had previously saved. And by the way, this is also something that DocBuddy solves for users. Sorry about that. We had a phone ringing in here in the studio. The host didn't put his on silent. Jeez. And then finally, the last, uh, the last of the four main issues in this ED survey of EHR troubles, giving uh, opportunity for EHR innovation, editing auto-populated data. So this is like timestamps that are in place to be helpful, but hospital EDs don't run like a Swiss train station where everything's on time, it's all neat and tidy, and you can have a very fair expectation that something is going to happen you know, at a given place in time. And to me, this is just, this is just a, a tough way to design and implement a, a feature. It's meant to be helpful, but doesn't take the reality of the situation into account. So when we look at these, um, we look at these issues in ED departments and the, the obstacles they face with their EHRs, <coughs> excuse me, the lack of automation, copy and paste data, creates clutter and viral copies of errors. These are things you can fix with a better workflow. Better workflow, instead of being tethered to a computer, um, having a little freedom, having a little mobility gets you around those. The, the latter two, simple tasks requiring manual workarounds or editing auto-populated data. That's a failure of the system or that's a failure in the configuration of the system, both of which you should be fairly easy to overcome um, if you got the right folks working on your EHR. And beyond that, hopefully the, uh, the team that works on your EHR um, is open to receiving feedback on what they have created. So if you're interested in provider workflows, this is a, a, another great article to read. I do my best not to share any articles I don't think are great with you, but this one was particularly interesting because you get uh, a, a couple layers deeper. Like we know EHRs are, are a sore spot for physicians. We know it's causing uh, dissatisfaction, leading to burnout, leading to early retirement, which flows into that pending uh, shortage of physicians we're going to face. But this actually tells you why. And there's not a whole lot of that out there. We'll have the link for this one in the show notes for you too. And with that, let's call it an episode. It's been a lot of fun to talk through this with you. Action packed. Like I said, we didn't have time for housekeeping up front. So we're going to get to the housekeeping at the end. As always, thank you for listening to the DocBuddy Journal. To learn more about DocBuddy and our solutions, please visit docbuddy.com. We'd be happy to set up an intro call and a demo for you and your organization. Also, be sure you're subscribed on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And until next time, I'm your host, Eric Sunset. We'll talk to you again soon.